This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 78 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Norai Jemmel. Her book, The Travel Photographer's Way, was nominated for the 2022 Edward Stanford Travel Photography Book of the Year. Now, in this conversation, we do talk about her book, but as you'll hear, the conversation quickly becomes a deluge of helpful advice about photography, and we only scratch the surface here when it comes to what she covers in her book. We talk about gear, planning, organization, knowing your camera, pitching, and a lot more. So that's coming up in the interview. But before we start, just a reminder to share the podcast with your friends on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out at the first of the month. So now, here is Norai Jemmel. Norai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And congratulations on your Edward Sanford Travel Photo Book of the Year shortlist nomination uh, for your book, The Travel Photographer's Way. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, that was only announced yesterday. So um, still kind of, it's still sinking in. I'm very, very happy, obviously. So thank you. Yeah, that's great. It is an interesting book. Um, It's a beautiful one, right? Uh, Full color photos. Um, But the book doesn't just give insight into what it takes to be a practicing travel photojournalist, but it's full of stories of your own photographic experiences and it has also some interesting exercises to challenge, I guess, would, would be travel photographers. So it's, it's a really rich book, but I, and I hope we can uh, dive into some of these um, subjects here. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But first let's, let's cut to the chase and talk about the one thing uh, photographers and camera nerds like us can't stop chatting about. And that's gear, right? <laughs> The gear. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you Absolutely. Say, you say in the book that you um that we should aim to pack light. But when I see the captions um of the photographs in the books, and just for reference here, um the images in the book, all the images in the book have um in the captions it has the settings that you use, so the ISO, shutter speed, aperture. Um, but I also see like um, you know, focal lengths and I also see DSLRs and mirrorless. So it seems like you have you have a lot of gear. But um, what does your camera kit look like when you're on the road? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all say we try to travel light. That's <laughs> the dichotomy. You need to be able to move and need to be able to react to, to different situations. And if you have more kit than you can carry, you know, unless you're Annie Leibovitz and you have a team with you, it's <laughs> it's you and your kit. So uh, the, the traveling light is what you can cope with. So... My travel bag, obviously flying means taking um, sort of carry-on luggage, mm-hmm. um, which is a camera bag. 
And then obviously anything that doesn't fit in there will go into the holes and that's only the non-breakable stuff. I mean, there are photographers who will send a pelly case ahead if you're doing that kind of job, if you're working on some kind of advertising campaign. But for a photojournalist, you tend to, you know, you'll put things in pockets. You've seen guys getting on, on planes with um, photography, vests on, you right, know, they've right. got little, little lenses in each pocket. And I haven't ever gone that far. That's a little bit too nerdy for me. Um, and <laughs> also don't want to draw attention to myself if I'm flying somewhere <laughs> where I'm on my own and I don't really want to say I've got camera kit on me. So yeah, what I tend to do is on the plane, obviously I'll take a, a kit bag with me uh, on wheels, you know, something I don't have to keep lifting up because once you put your laptop in there and everything else that goes, you know, with all the paraphernalia as well as the actual cameras and lenses, um, it's heavy. And then obviously when I get to the place I'm I'm working in, I try to have a base so that I'm not flitting around too much and then I can leave what I don't need for that afternoon or that night back in the accommodation and just take a backpack with what I need for that work. So traveling like you need enough um, kit to fall back on depending on the job. You know, if I'm doing something that's more sort of street photography or urban, I might have a smaller camera with me and a few smaller lenses. But if I'm going to Antarctica, it's definitely going to be a telephoto mm-hmm. and a series of bodies in case one of them fails, you know, and backup um, batteries, etc. So, yeah, travelling light is kind of your day pack, your, you know, you're out on the job that day and not taking everything with you. Um, but you do need to be, that's the dichotomy of being a photographer. You do need the kit. It, there's no getting away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, maybe we can talk about this later, but at the back of the book, you have a sample shot list and a sample day sheet where you kind of chart out, I guess, you know, the shots that you want to take during the day. And in in that, you kind of glean that you don't bring everything that you take with you on your trip to each shot or on each day. You kind of try to, I guess, as you say, leave some back at the hotel and just bring what you need with you for that shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah because if, if you've planned ahead and you know what you're shooting, you know, if you're going to go and do a landscape, a sunset, a big wide angle you know, double page spread, luscious image at sunset, then you don't need the telephoto lens and you will need your tripod and you will need your filters. And obviously, if you've got the kit for that job, you're not sort of fiddling around in your bag and missing things. Um, I mean, some people might disagree and say they'll always have another camera on their shoulder, but there are some jobs that require certain bits of kit. And so if you are streamlined with that, you'll get where you need to go. Sometimes you're hiking up a hill as well, so you don't want to take everything with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, planning ahead, uh, as you say, is important. Um, but uh, And I want to ask you some questions about that. But before we get there, just on the gear um, question here, because I, I started the conversation because <laughs> it's one that I, I like to have conversations about. Um, but it seems that um, many like photography enthusiasts are fixated on gear to the point that it like, I don't know, per, um, paralyzes them or prevents them from going out and um, taking photos or so. So what are your thoughts on um, gear fetishes in the photographic <laughs> community? Yeah, um, well, you know. There's definitely a, a tendency to fixate on kits for photographers. And, 
you know, even just sort of eyeing up what someone else is using or just seeing another Canon photographer or, you know, saying, well, I don't shoot Nikon, Nikon, you know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a Canon or a Fuji. There's that kind of like tribalism, I think. <laughs> um, and then there's sort of checking out each other's gear to see if you've got the latest model or not. Um, <laughs> I think there's, you know, we live in very sort of consumerist times where we're always being sold new stuff. And mm. part of the society we live in is that, you know, we're judged on if we've got the latest gadget, the newest phone, and there's this exponential increase in digital technology so there's always new hardware coming out you know you've just invested in a massive dslr and you think you're there and you're going to be out and taking brilliant photographs and then six months later there's this amazing mirrorless camera that you want that's two thousand dollars more and so (laughs) you have to sort of i think you have to kind of look at yourself as a photographer and when i started i you know i've had cameras all my life and i did invest in a film dslr about 30 years ago and that's kind of where i started but I wasn't probably as good as my camera was then. And there's a point, I think, where you have to, I always say to people, be the best photographer you can with the kit that you've got. Mm-hmm. And don't keep looking over your shoulder at what other people have. And you can take amazing photographs on the best camera that you've got is the one you've got with you, right? So whether that's your phone or a little compact, you know, train your eye, think about learning the craft of photography. And you'll know when you've you've outworn or outgrown your own kit you'll know when you need a better camera Mm -hmm. and I think there was a point when I was working and just started to work about 12 years ago and I won a few competitions and I realized that I kind of needed better glass better low light capable sensors and bit by bit I would for every trip kind of buy something for that trip and you don't need to have it all to start with. And you know what? If you go, the only the only thing I would say is if you're going somewhere like Antarctica or on a wildlife trip, you do need a telephoto lens. You know, there's no getting away from it. Um, sometimes you'll invest in that and bet your money back with the work. And if you're just starting out, you know, you can hire a lens. I've seen a lot of people going to the Arctic um, with 600 millimeter lenses, and they've all hired them. They're very expensive to hire. Don't get me wrong, but they're you know they're twenty thousand pounds to buy. Okay. So you know there's a balance, isn't there? And I I think most photographers would say that some of their best work was taken on some of their oldest kit. You can see the resolution differences if you look at your old work, and sometimes you think, oh god, I wish I had the latest model now. You know that I have now ten years ago because I that picture would be amazing, but. You can, you know, if you look at old film pictures, you can you can see right. they're brilliant photographs, but no, resolution wise, they would be better if they were taken now, probably by that photographer. Mm-hmm. But they are what they are, and so I think, you know, we have this thing where we look back on our work and we always want it to be better. Um, and then when you get a new camera, you think, wow, it can do this, it can do that. But you need to know the one, the camera that you've got. You need to know how to use it, and you need to outgrow it before really you should move on. Um, I think. I think, yeah, the best camera is the one you have on you and and fixating on gear. I think there's also that thing that people think they're going to be a better photographer if they have just have that camera and they just have that lens. But that's like saying, you know, you blame your tools if you do a bad job. It's really about you. Um, And you can make what you have work for you if you know what it can do, I would say. Does that answer the question? (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. And and I I like what you're saying here about, you know, the – uh, consumption uh, and the like, the capitalism here, the marketing behind the laz- latest uh, doodads and gadgets, and you know, yeah. getting the highest resolution. I, you know, I think people focus too much maybe on gear and, and megapixels, and like 
what what results are these like clinical and sterile photographs? Um, and I know this is a matter of preference, but like I'm thinking back here at some of the most interesting images I'm drawn to, and they're often like technically flawed or they're old and grainy, like old film of uh, uh, photographs, out of focus, blurry. Um, but there's something special about that. They're they're images with souls. Um, I, I guess from the technical sp- standpoint, you know what I mean. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I, I'm not one of those photographers that looks at other people's work and sort of, and I've seen people doing this, they'll enlarge because we're all on digital screens now. The minute you post something, people will take their phones and just enlarge it and look for what's <laughs> out of focus. So it's really odd. And one of the quotes I've got in the book, in, in the section on portrait photography, is by a really, um, sort of, a really sort of top, um, top of his sort of, um, of, of his career sort of or of his contemporaries photographer who does a lot of Hollywood um he does the Oscars etc Greg Williams and one of the quotes from from him is that he would much rather a slightly blurred slightly Dutch slightly kind of canted or not quite right photo that has sort of heart than a perfect technical you know brilliant photo that everything is as it should be technically that just doesn't really have any atmosphere or soul. So obviously it's subjective. We're talking about a creative endeavour. It's art, isn't it? So what you like and what I like isn't necessarily what someone else likes, but I'm with you. I I much prefer the composition, the light, the colours to be there over the perfection because a perfect shot that doesn't have those other things is, it leaves you cold, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So so your, yeah. So your book isn't, a technical, I know we're talking about like, we're skirting on the conversation of technical, <laughs> of tech, <That's> okay. <laughs> but your book is not a technical guide and you say so yourself in the introduction, but it's something more practical. You know, you were talking about feeling and, um, feeling a shot and, and, and framing a shot, shot over like fidgeting with, with settings. So in the context of like travel photography, um, why might feeling a photograph why might that be more important than, I, I guess, worrying about resolution or, you know, fidgeting with settings or, you know, being preoccupied with taking, you know, something that takes yourself out of that moment that you're trying to pho- photograph? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, I'd, I'd say the book is equal parts travelogue, technical advice interviews assignments and then like maybe theory ethics philosophy mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it so there there is the technical there but it isn't just about the technical because I, there are those books already right so there's lots of you know even your camera manual is a, is a technical guide mm-hmm. um and when i first started out taking photos and i went on a lot of courses i traveled with other photographers i did a couple of courses i studied in in, in chile and did a diploma because I really wanted to learn the technical. And I guess where I'm coming from is that I've reached the stage where obviously I know how my camera works and I understand that technical side of it. And I have assimilated all of that. And so now I can just sort of be with my camera. And that's what I was trying to say in some of the, the chapters that you're probably referring to, that if your consideration is always looking at someone else and asking what setting shall I use here and and that's what you do when you're learning, right? You travel with a pro photographer, or you go on a course, you go on a day safari, that kind of thing. That's great. You learn as you go. But if you're at the stage where you want to be a professional photographer, 
you kind of should already know innately what you're setting your camera up as before you get to the place you're going to. And then you should be able to look around you and get a sense of where you are and a feeling for where you are. It sounds a little bit hippie, but all the <laughs> photographers that I know that are working and, and really successful and love what they're doing, they say the same thing. It's like all parts. I mean, I you know, we all kind of are into mindfulness and you know, being in the moment and trying to be happy and all that stuff about well-being, that applies to everything in life. And certainly for photography, being on the top of a hill as the sun's about to set, you know, you are at one with your surroundings. And if, you know, if you're kind of like freaking out and knocking your, I've seen people doing, knocking your tripod over to get to another spot because you've seen a better, you know, better composition, it's going to be so rushed and you'll be so um, frantic that it's unlikely you're going to get an amazing picture. There should, be, I think there should be a little bit of magic there. And for me, that as I, maybe because I've got, as I've got older, I've become a bit more <laughs> zen about everything. Mm. Not all the time. I can be frantic. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, it's about kind of being in the, in, you know, the right place at the right time. And it should it should happen with ease. I think not. That's not to say that sometimes some of the photography we take isn't is isn't spontaneous, um, and you know situational things happen where you know whip around and see something amazing. Of course, that happens all the time, but that happens because I think you're in the zone or whatever you want to call it. You're in the moment and you're attuned to what's around you, and you see. You know, I've heard so many stories from other photographers about having a group on a safari and everyone's photographing the same thing, but it's the person that sort of looks around and looks behind them Mm -hmm. and is aware of everything that sees three cheetahs walking, you know, in the distance and gets the original unique shot that everyone else has missed because they're all photographing a lion roaring. So I just think being aware of what else there is and being, um, it sounds very hippie, doesn't it? I'm, as I'm saying, I'm thinking, gosh, um, you're going to think I'm just this crazy lady. But yeah, no, no. <laughs> something about being in the moment is important, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when I when I was in, I just got back from France not too long ago. And when I was in there, I I, I was in a bookstore and I was kind of flipping through. I was, I was in the photography section. I was flipping through the books. I found a book um, called London 1959 by Sergio Leran. He's a, um, I think he's an Argentine photographer and he went to London for a few months. Um, but this, this guy, I, 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 he's, he's well known, but I hadn't known about him in, until that moment, but I was doing some research and he has this uh, letter that he wrote to his nephew who asked, how can I be a good photographer? And you, you know, you're mentioning this hippie stuff, but he, he wrote this a beautiful, beautiful letter he wrote to his nephew and he talks about not just being in touch with the surroundings, but being in touch with a, your camera as a tool that becomes like an appendage to, to your body in these very mystical terms, right? It's, 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 yeah. it's wonderful. It's like, you just know your tools so well that you're, 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 you're in touch with them so well that it's just kind of automatic. It's like this in touch with the universe yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it is like that. I mean, you know, anyone who, you know, if you watch the karate kid, you know, if you <laughs> wax on, wax off, it is all about, it is about feeling at one with things. Yeah. I really do believe that. And I also say that in the book and when I'm teaching, you should know your camera so well that it should feel like an extension of your hand. It should fit in your hand that you don't even really notice that you're holding it. It's one of the reasons I don't like to switch cameras too much because the system that I've used for the last 10 years, it feels 
it's ergonomically sort of, you know, it's part of, of, of my physicality when I'm photographing. I know where the settings are. I know how to mm -hmm. change. Somebody taught me this years ago. If you can, you know, if you can change the settings without taking the camera away from your eye, you can keep working. You can move the focal point. You can change the exposure and the aperture. That's kind of where you're going. And you, you become the karate kid. You kind of, <laughs> you know, there's no thought. It just happens. And so, yeah, yeah I love that. You'll have to send me that, I, um, I, that I letter. I'd love to see that. I will. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I'll put those links in the show notes and I'll also email it to you. Fabulous. Um, so let's um, go back to this conversation about travel uh, photography in particular. So your book goes over um, some of the most common types of, I guess, travel shots. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk to us about a few of them. Um, like when you're on a trip, what are the types of shots that you want to come home with? Yeah, I mean, I guess as I've, as I've become... Um, a sort of photojournalist and I do more storytelling than individual kind of, you know, I used to, I started out trying to take really beautiful or really interesting, big, wow photographs. And that's how we all start. We're like, wow, you know, look at that, look at that landscape. I want right. to really capture it or I want to capture the Northern Lights. When you're a working photographer, you're really telling stories. And so that's part of having the shot list in the, in the beginning is that you want to tell a story in a variety of ways and photo editors need um, a variety of photos from you. So before you even start, you're thinking you pre-visualize, always pre-visualize the feature. I sometimes on the way to a um, assignment, I'll be drawing a little storyboard and a little shot list kind of visualized shot list of what I think I'm going to see. And that, that comes from the research that I've done in advance um, whether that's looking at other images on, on, on Google Earth or in a photo library, or if it's just kind of being immersed in that destination. I often read books about the places that I'm going to just to get a feel for the culture. And so you start imagining what you're going to find when you get there. And sometimes you find that and sometimes you find something else. But that's kind of the first stage. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the book, each main chapter, after you have the introduction about, you know, being prepared and planning and what kit to take with you and what the really important stuff is to have with you, then it goes through all of the types of photography that I consider to be the fundamental elements of travel photography. So, you know, from photographing people to landscapes to urban and architectural images to food and, you know, farm to plate type stuff where you're looking at agriculture and that kind of thing, which is also landscape as well. Everything, everything crosses over really. Um, but some stories are more kind of adventure and action. And then you've got obviously got wildlife. So you want to try and shoot the full gamut of that. And then you want to shoot that in like a filmmaker would close up mid, mid range and, you know, long shot establishing shot so that you can begin the, um, the, um, the feature with a big wide sense of place sort of establishing shot and then hone in a little bit on or home in a little bit on um, the close-ups, the detail. So um, I did a big feature with Nat Geo on a place in Turkey and there's a coffee cup in that, um, in that um, 11 page feature. And you wouldn't ordinarily think that just, you know, a little cup of Turkish coffee would make it into Nat Geo. Um, but that's part of the story. So, you're telling a, you're telling um, a cultural um, and a, maybe a personal and maybe a topical or a newsworthy story. It depends what you've gone there for. But that's what I would say is try to shoot a little bit of everything. 
in terms of what your parameters are for that place. Obviously, if you try and shoot everything, you you need a shot list to start with. Otherwise, you're going to be overwhelmed and take way too many pictures. <laughs> if you're if you're going somewhere and you don't have an assignment, that's different. You know, if you're if you're right. on holiday and you've just kind of got your camera and you're really into photography, that's a totally different thing. But if you're thinking about getting something published, work through a shot list and have a variety. Think when when am I going to get some people shots? When am I going to focus on some really well lit landscapes? When will I go and do some interiors, maybe in a few museums, that kind of thing. So there is enough choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the back of the book, as I mentioned earlier, there's this uh, a few examples of your shot list and 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 like what it looks like when you plan your day, and it really goes granular. It goes down to the the hour you're going to be at this place at this time, and you hope to get this shot with this setup or this lens or whatever. That's helpful uh, to read. Um, you know, and just when I'm thinking about my, my own upcoming travels, I, you know, it helps me kind of reframe what it is I'm, I'm trying to do or want to do and get organized with, with my shots. Like instead of, as you say, come home with, you know, 3000 yeah. images that I sprayed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and obviously you'll, you'll see other things in between the plan that you've got. You might get the portrait, but you can start tick. I tick it as I go along. I think, well, I've got five really good portraits. And then mm-hmm. within that, you're thinking, photograph women as well as men, you know. So because sometimes I you see. come back, I think I've only spoken to, because that happens a lot when you travel. You're only in certain cultures. Women don't always come out and talk to you. And if you're a male photographer, that's even more so. Um so, yeah, you can keep a little list. Otherwise, you do just get – I when I started out, I would just photograph everything because everything was beautiful and, I, you know, everything mm-hmm. was interesting. And you get really caught, caught up in um, sort of the atmosphere of where you are, don't you? So it's, it's, it's just a little bit easy to start with a shot list. And I teach filmmaking. And you can't make a film without storyboards and right. a screenplay and then a shot list. And you, you pare it down from that. Otherwise, it, you, you're not, you're not going to ever be in the right place at the right time. You'll just be two hours late for everything and <laughs> go mm-hmm. over budget and uh, miss your flight back. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm glad that earlier you, you brought up the the feature that you did, the 11-page feature for Nat Geo, um, because I had a question uh, about that. And Well, I had a question about just like getting published and, you know, what to do with all the photos that you've, people have accumulated over, over the years and, and their travels, but um, kind of more actively. Um, pitching a photo piece, pitching a photo feature. Um, what does the state of the industry look like for you? Like how, I guess two parts to this question, like how do you approach that? Is that something that you lean on your archive to find out or is that something that you plan and how do you, how do you pitch? That's an interesting question, Jeremy. Um, yeah, so I think well in chapter eleven of the book there is a lot of advice about what to do with your work and how to get published. It takes, you know, it can take on a myriad of forms the way that you get your work out there and whether you're working from your own archive or pitching for new work and you know whether you've already taken it or you're actually going on assignment. To be honest, most um photographers who are kind of starting out are not necessarily going to be commissioned. Mm-hmm. And obviously given help to get somewhere to shoot a story, it's only really established photographers who get who get that kind of work. So when you've been doing it for a few years, you, you're lucky enough to be sent places. And that's fabulous. That's the best way. I think most people who have got an archive of, 
of photos that want to get them out there, then learning how to curate um, a photo story, learning how to look at your own work, and as we were just saying, having a variety of shots that might make a feature. I've done a few masterclasses with National Geographic Traveller UK in the, over the last few years, and the one I did last year was on getting published, and it was how you pitch. And I remember um, talking to another photographer recently, and she'd been in my session, and she came and said to me, like, recently, oh, that really helped. So if you make your work into – I make them into PDFs sometimes, and I'll, I'll actually make them look like physical articles. I'll put captions. I'll do a bit of text. Hmm. I'll put a heading on it. I'll make it look like a Nat Geo feature. Send it to the photo editor and say, look, I've just got, I've just been here and, you know, I've got other photos, but this is how I envisage the story. And if you've got a good series of photos, they usually somebody will come back to you and say, oh, I really like this. Can we see what else you've got? Or they'll say – you know, can you send us another however many, 20, 30 photos? And then the team will look at what you've got and they'll shape that into a different story possibly. So that's the thing about having shot widely when you do go on assignment. So there's enough for you to fall back on. Because it's bizarre. Sometimes you get asked for things like, you know, have you got more pictures of people in the street? And if you're only focusing on sunsets and sunrises, you'll have forgotten. You'll say, oh, I don't want any people in my pictures that doesn't really work for magazines. Right. Um, that works for wall art. So learning what different magazines, different platforms want is a, is a really good way to start, I would say. And pitching, you need to know that platform, that, that magazine. You need to know the kind of um, features they produce. So deconstruct what you see. If you want to do a, a Nat Geo Traveller photo essay, then buy the magazine and look at the photo essays for a few months and see what the team obviously is working with at the moment and what kind of stories they're telling and then think well can I tell a story like that have I been somewhere and go back to your archives and pull out some pictures um I think it's quite hard to go back to old work um sometimes it just doesn't stand up but other times like you know I've been published 10 years after a trip um because somebody's asked for pictures of Antarctica Wow. And although to my eye, they're not as good as I'd like them to be technically because I've got, you know, better equipment now, they still work as a story. Um, so there's, yeah, pitching is one of those things that as you get more established in in the industry, you tend to not have to pitch as much. You do get commissioned a little bit more. But equally, knowing who to pitch the story to, pitching the right things, just like being a writer, you know, right. you wouldn't pitch a sort of a first-person travelogue to, you know, a publication that only works on, uh, you know, that sort of luxury, um, luxury travel stories. They're not really interested in you and your and your personal journey, um, and vice versa. So know the know the publication, um, curate what you've already got if you have archives, and and try to be as you're going along as you're traveling. Try to be um, not ruthless, but at the end of every day, pick out your sort of 10 best shots of the day because they won't all be that good. You'll know what you've taken and you'll know what fits your storyboard, your shot list. Put them into a folder, you know, best of day one so that when you get back, you've kind of got a story already. Um, that's kind of what I try to do. And the other thing is to have in your mind three or four publications that you might be able to pitch to. So you may have been commissioned to work for um, BBC Travel or something. Um and you know that story that you're telling, but when you're there, you often look around and think, well, that would be a really great 
nature wildlife piece I'm going to photograph that on the side and then you keep those photos separate pitch that later with a different angle and most working photographers and travel writers tend to get three or four or five sometimes pieces out of one trip not all at the same time but maybe later on and right. I've managed to do that a few times now so yeah that sounds like it's good advice and that there's a I guess a dovetailing or a confluence between the advice that um, people give to writers and also photographers or travel writers and travel photographers. It's the same kind of principles uh, apply there. Um, yeah. Th this this um, pitching question all sounds kind of like um, active. And so what about like, are there passive um, ways to to kind of leverage an archive like is is, is stock photography is that is that a thing um still yeah yeah i mean I, I guess when i came into photography which wasn't that long ago it was about 12 years ago that i started doing it professionally there were more people that i knew who had been working with stock libraries mm -hmm. and still do but there was a lot more money in it before i came into it and so it was kind of worth the effort from what I've heard from the people that I know who have always done it, it's just less and less money. You know, you know, all of the photo libraries are paying less. However, having said that, there are some really brilliant kind of bespoke travel photo libraries that always seem to supply the top magazines with cover shots. And I know a lot of photographers who do work with them. What you do tend to get from that is a lot of exposure. And if you know, if you make the cover of National Geographic Traveller or Wanderlust, it's really good for your career. So there's a balance there between the time and effort it takes to to um, curate and to sell to a photo library and what you physically get back from that. If you are, if that's kind of what you're thinking of doing, I would say, you know, you can sell from your own website, your own photo archive. That's quite a good way to work. And once people know that you are a good photographer, you do often get asked, for, I get asked a lot, do you have anything of Bolivia? Is there anything you've got from, you know, can we see what you've got? And they just want a few photos and they'll pay you. Similarly, if I write an article for somebody um, and they've commissioned me to write it, because I'm a writer as well, they'll then say, oh, do you have any photos and how much will you charge us? Whereas if I wasn't a photographer, they wouldn't pay me for my photos probably. Um, so that is a way of, of creating more income. And I do know a few writers who have studied photography recently, who've bought better equipment, who've really upped their game because they know they'll get paid for photos and words. Um, so if you're a writer that I would get, I would advise that, you know, a sort of or hire someone like me for the day, <laughs> go out and, you know, really get to know your camera a bit better. Um, but yeah, there are other ways of, of earning from, from photography but it's not that well paid unless you're someone like Franz Lanting or Sebastian Salgado and you're you know producing massive wall art for galleries right you right. know digital you know you, you know what it's like digital photos digital files don't don't quite earn the money although I know everyone's into their NFTs <laughs> at the moment that's <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about that. <laughs> no, don't, because I don't really know anything about it apart from... I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> I'm too scared to even get into it, but I know some people who are doing it and, you know, good luck to them and let's see what happens. I hope they do make lots of money on right. the back of them. <laughs> right. Well, I'd like to close these uh, conversations with a final question about uh, books. And I was wondering if you can recommend any travel photography books or photographers that, that inspired you or that kind of struck a chord with you yeah I mean when I first started I, I used to go to a lot of 
a lot of talks, things at the Royal Geographical Society. I'd listen to so many photographers and buy all their books. And mostly what I used to buy were the kind of coffee table books that were just so luscious that you sort of, you know, you just kind of fall away into them and are transported. And that's still, I prefer that kind of book to a technical book. But then you need the technical books too because you do need, and I would say, <laughs> firstly, you need your camera manual. <laughs> um, that's the first book you need to read. And even though you don't have to read it cover to cover, you should have it with you because, you know, if that's a PDF or a digital download or something, the most important thing for anyone to improve their photography is to sort of know what the camera can do. And when you're away, you will sort of think, I don't know how to do bracketed exposures. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, look it up, look up where to find that on your camera and then find a YouTube tutorial and have a little practice. That's kind of my first thing. And then in terms of, you know, travel inspiration, travel photography, I I, I have loved the work of Sebastian Sagada for a long time and he's got, his books are incredible. So I definitely recommend him. Um, at the beginning of my career, I used to read a lot of and, and buy a lot of books by um, a landscape photographer called um, David Notton, who's a, a British landscape photographer. He's got books that actually are a mix of photography and technical advice, and he tells stories too. But he's a more coffee table in size and style than mine is. But there's certainly an element of his of his book that I was inspired by. Um, Susan Sontag on photography was mm-hmm. kind of one of the first books that I read about photography that made me think there was another way of looking at it. It wasn't just having a piece of hardware that I knew how to handle. It was about the philosophy of photography. So I think everyone should read that. Um, what else is on my shelf? Um, I, I did read, I think it was the... Um, it was the Lonely Planet Guide to Travel Photography. That's probably the first sort of reference book I bought, which is by Richard Lanson, which is definitely worth having if you want to get really into the nitty gritty of the technical stuff. Um, and then all the photographers at Sea Legacy um, from, you know, Paul Nicklin, Christina Mittermeier, um, Brian Scary. I just love the fact that they're, photographing wild places but they're also doing something for conservation and trying to draw attention um, to our world and Brian Scarry said something that I've just written an article for adventure.com and he was on the Sea Legacy site last year and he'd said something about when he started photographing he wanted to take pretty pictures and beautiful images and then he started to see what was happening in the oceans and his work became more like he likened it to war photography that it was you know something he had to shine a light on and it might be gritty and it might be visceral and it might even be ugly sometimes but he had to show it and so that's kind of where I'm going with my work not that my work is is that kind of um subject matter because I still work in the travel industry but they're the photographers that I'm reading and, and and looking at and and sort of looking to for for guidance, really, I think they're they're the ones that are making the difference in the world. Yeah, that's yeah. That those are good recommendations. I'm familiar with Sontag um, and and her work, but the others not so much. I'll definitely check those out. Um, I'm just thinking here as you, as you're referencing this, um, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking like I recently put my old photographs in one um, one kind of archive, one one library. And of course, I backed it up, and I was looking at my very f- first digital photographs right so yeah. long time ago and uh you know I was, I was, i'm thinking about like the, the 
the type of foot photography that I was doing. And I was like, oh, I don't want the people in my shot. And they're just kind of like generic shots of like a street or a building or something. But as I kind of take more and more pictures, I, I'm in, in, interested in kind of the, the human element. and I'm interested in, in people and um, kind of the not so beautiful. And I think that's, those images are interesting, but those kind of stories are are important because you know the camera's often not pointing at at those types of things. So, um, the- yeah, I, I I totally agree. I mean, I think I think that kind of documentary photography mm-hmm. um, is much more interesting than you know. It, there's so many different types of travel photography, aren't there? Um, and I was listening to one of your podcasts about the different types of travel writing recently. Um, Who's the audience? You know, what do they want to see? Are you trying? Is it? Is it? Are you trying to sell a holiday destination by, you know, lighting beautifully, um, Venice, Rialto Bridge, that kind of thing, or are you are you working on sort of looking at the sort of human element in a place and and, and telling story about that? So sometimes people will look at work and think, well, it's not that exciting. It's not. It's a bit. You know, it's a bit kind of urban and prosaic, but photojournalists are documenting what they see so I think finding your own style as well and using what's around you I I kind of now as I guess I've been doing it long enough that if somebody walks into the frame for me they'll make the picture I'll wait for them to walk into the frame (laughs) so that there is not just that kind of really um, cliched human scale will ask someone to stand on a hill and look into the distance that's become so you know commonplace and a little bit trite in travel magazines but Someone might just walk through a, a you know the tunnel of, of the tube in London and just the you know the shadow or something will just create some atmosphere. So yeah, working with with that. So I guess we develop, don't we? we develop our eye and what we like. And it, it is interesting when you look through your own archive to see how you've changed as a photographer. That's why it's so interesting. I think it's just the best, <laughs> the mm. best form of of storytelling for me. Certainly at the moment. Yeah. Well, very good, Nora. I thank you so much for your time, and we wish you all the best with the uh, the awards uh, coming up at, um, I guess, the beginning of March. So good luck with that, and thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can do it again another time. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.